Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event with Daniel Mendelssohn. Daniel Mendelssohn has been described by the New York Times Book Review as our most irresistible literary critic. He is an elegant, stylistic polymath, a reviewer, an essayist, a memoirist, a classical scholar, and a translator of the Greek poet C.P. Cavafy. In his memoir, The Lost, A Search for Six or Six Million, he excavates his family history. In his essay collection, Waiting for the Barbarians, he disses madmen as melodrama rather than drama. His new project is a literature and life book recounting the year he spent reading the Odyssey with his late father and the revelations of that experience. He speaks with Ian Weddy in this wide-ranging conversation. We hope you enjoy it. Well, good afternoon, everybody. That's an incredibly loud sound from where I am. Um, I guess it's in my ear. Um, welcome to an irresistible critic session with Daniel Mendelssohn. Uh, my name's Ian Weddy, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome Daniel, um, and also to welcome you, um, an audience whom we can't see, but whom we are convinced are going to hang on every word. Um, can I just remind you, please, to do the ordinary, necessary things, and that's to make sure that your cell phone is turned off or at least muted. Um, and the same goes for any other clever devices you may have about your person. Um, I'd also just like to thank John Campbell, who, um, as we were sitting in the uh, green room waiting to come out here, came charging in, in his usual enthusiastic way, with half a bottle of Pegasus Pinot Noir. So um, Daniel and I have had a snifter. Very nice. Thank you, John, and we wish you well. Okay, now just a very brief introduction because, um, you know, I really, really want Daniel to be the talker in this session. Um, but I'm going to do uh, a brief introduction and then hopefully th give him a decent throw that will get him going. Um, Daniel is described by the New York Times book review as our most irresistible literary critic, and I'm struck by the use of the rather emphatic pronoun there. Um, one can understand why the our in this statement conveys uh, a hint of proprietorial pride um, since having Daniel on your list of regular contributors would be cause enough for most editors to preen a little. However, of course, um, the hour also encompasses a large audience, including, I'm sure, many in this room who read the New York Review of Books and the New Yorker, as well as the New York Times Book Review. Uh, many of you will also have read Daniel's essays in the books where they're collected, most recently in 2012, uh, Waiting for the Barbarians, Essays from the Classics to Pop Culture, a wonderful book. Um, and if you haven't read these books, then you should. Um, I promise you many hours of entertainment, a word I hope we'll come back to, as well as uh, tremendous intellectual challenges and pleasures. Now, Daniel's criticism is remarkable for its scholarly, intellectual rigour, but also to my mind, for the lucidity, the lightness of his prose style, for his hospitality to difference, um, and for the astonishing breadth and variety of his interests. Classics, obviously, 
but also literature across a very broad spectrum, uh, theatre across an equally broad spectrum that includes musical theatre and opera, Donizetti as well as Mel Brooks, as well as film and television, and not least, as most of you will know by his now famous or perhaps even notorious dissection of Matthew Viner's AMC television series, Mad Men. A nice little ripple through the audience at that <laughs> of this, of expectation, perhaps. Um, then, of course, there are the major works of memoir or autoethnography, including the international bestseller, The Lost, a search for six of six million and translations of the great Greek Alexandrian poet Constantine Kavafi. Wonderful book. Um, now, there have already, of course, been a couple of sessions with Daniel in the festival program. One last Friday on translation and the classics with the wonderful Anna Jackson, and another yesterday on memoir with Helena Wisniewska Bau. So, while we're uh, not going to avoid either the classics or memoir in this session, we will be concentrating on Daniel's work as a critic, but perhaps finding ways into that diverse body of judgments by way of the classics and by way of memoir too, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So it's a very great pleasure to have Daniel Mendelssohn here with us this afternoon, and an honor, I would say. So please join me in welcoming him. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> now, I'd like to start um, at the thick end, as it were, with some high-concept stuff uh, to do with critical sensibility okay. or critical mentality. How is that formed? What are the processes and the influences that shape it? And then move on to some of the judgments that we find in Daniel's essays. Now, reading the body of work, um, one encounters over and over, it seems to me, a particular structural dynamic in the thinking and in the writing, and therefore perhaps in the sensibility or the mentality of this critic. And it seems to me it has to do with dialogue in particular, or the dialogic, the vivacity of argument and counter-argument as both formal and social discourse, as a mode of drama, as well as of politics, a way of telling stories, as well as a way of doing philosophy. Indeed, as a way of living, a way of being social, a way of having conversations. Um, now, an obvious source of this particular interest in dialogue is, of course, Greek drama. Um, but there's another place that it seems to me we could start with the formation of a critical sensibility, and that's with Daniel's grandfather, uh, Grandfather Jäger. Um, a stylish dresser, as is Daniel, um, a formal and exact man in his religious observance, but also a great storyteller. Um, and in the opening section of The Lost, The Search for Six Million, for six of the six million, um, you, Daniel, write that, to me, as a child, the two salient things about him, your grandfather, were his devoutness and his wonderful clothes. Um, and you describe these two characteristics as the boundaries within which it was possible to be both worldly and pious, mm -hmm. suave and religious at the same time. Um, so it's, it's a kind of dialogic diagram, it seems to me, if you like, of the complete person. And you also say your grandfather told stories the way the Greeks did. Uh, would you like to tell us a bit about your grandfather and his possibly formative influence on you? Well, I think the key thing uh, in that um, 
you know, if we're going to look at him as a source for something in the way that I go about my business, I would say that uh, the allure for me is storytelling and that I, I think that as a critic as well as a memoirist, the, the pleasure and the, uh, the activity in which I am engaged in, in some sense, is to narrate something. And, um, you know, I don't see my critical work as coming out of some other part of my brain than does my other work, my work as a memoirist uh, or an essayist. Um, you know, it's all coming from the same place. I mean, I once got an email from someone who asked if I were in response to it. A, a review I had written and asked me if I was related to Daniel Mendelssohn who wrote The Lost and I said yes um, and <laughs> but, but it's interesting because I think we as a culture tend to sort of create these categories and, and, and I don't I think so a lot of my and actually um, Ian had asked me to find a snippet of uh, writing in which I describe what I think my criticism is about, and this is the very point, so you're going to be bored when I get to that, but the, the, the point that I make in that piece is that I think that a, an interesting piece of criticism is a narration of the, the means by which you came to the decision which you are reporting about whatever it is, whether it's, you know, Mad Men or Greek tragedy, right? So that the that and that sense that it's a story. I'm telling you the story of how I came to the opinion of this work that I now have. Yeah, the story of a thinking. Yeah. So I think yeah. that that's that's that sort of impulse to storytelling, you know, is so strong. And I was saying this the other day on the panel with the fabulous uh, Helena Brow that um, you know we used to joke about my grandfather that if we asked you to go to the grocery store to get a quart of milk, you would just come back with the quart of milk. But if Grandpa went to the gro grocery store to get a quart of milk, he'd come back with the milk. But he would have also won the lottery and met his first two wives. And, you know, and so everything was a story, right? Everything was a story. And, of course, it was all lies. But the point is <laughs> that a person who knows how to tell a story will turn everything into a story, whether there's real material or not. So for me... You know, and part of the, if my pieces have that quality of narration as opposed to just sort of analysis, it's, I'm almost embarrassed to say, it's a function of how I write them, which I tend to write them all in one day, in one sitting. You know, I do a lot of preparation, but then I sit up, you know, I get up in the morning and I make a pot of coffee, unfortunately not a flat white, um, <laughs> unavailable in the world's supposedly most powerful nation. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, which is why I'm <laughs> greedily drinking them whenever I can. Uh, so, uh, and I just sort of write straight through. So I'm kind of unraveling for myself the, the you know, the drama. How did mm. I figure this out? You know, so that, I think my grandfather is a sort of starting place because to me it's all the same activity. Right. You know. Yeah. You also talk in uh, that section about your grandfather about a kind of Russian dolls or Chinese box model of yeah. narration which is endlessly digressive <laughs> and which possibly resembles the Homeric way of storytelling in something like the Iliad. Right. 
We, so I talk about this a great deal in The Lost, mm. which is as much a story about how to tell the story as it is about the events that I'm describing. And that, you know, my grandfather, when he was telling a story, and I would sit there wrapped at his feet, literally at his feet, um, I would bring him his slippers. <laughs> he'd be sitting in a chair, and, uh, and I would sit there, and he would tell me stories. And he'd say, well, you know, um, he would tell me the story of uh, how his sister died during Thanksgiving dinner in 1943. But to really understand why they were having Thanksgiving in 1943, you had to hear first the story of his other sister who died at 26 in 1923 and was married to the same guy as the other sister. But to understand why both sisters had to marry the same man, you really need to go back to the prehistory of the family <laughs> and this terrible rivalry. But, you know, so everything was like that. And, you know, my grandfather, who, who because of World War I, uh, which started when he was 12 years old, uh, never really had a formal education, um, sort of understood, intuited something profound about history, which we were talking about the other day, which is that there is no end. Right? There is no starting. History doesn't start somewhere and end someplace. It's a series, as you say, of Chinese boxes. And I think that sort of layered quality is something I'm very interested in yeah. and in all, all the writing that I do. Yeah. If we can just come back to the rigor of critical practice, you know, understanding that what you're talking about is a, a kind of unified impulse in writing. Um, you do touch on the significance of your classical training mm -hmm. and your scholarly knowledge of the classics and the etymology of the word critic in English going back to the Greek. Can you talk a little about the idea of the rigor that comes from that notion? Well, you know, the word critic comes from the Greek verb krino, which means to judge to make a judgment and that, you know, we are increasingly uh, an anti-judgment society, right? People always saying, who am I to judge? And I always say, you have a brain. That's why you, <laughs> that's what allows you to judge, you know? And this sort of endless phony deference to everyone's sensitivities ends up in this sort of mud pit of nothingness. You know, I'm a person who believes very strongly that the reason that we have intelligence is to make judgments about things. Um, a lot of the way I go about thinking about things is obviously deeply influenced by my own training as a classicist. And, you know, one of the things I like about the classics uh, is that, you know, when you do a degree in classics, you have to know Greek and Latin, although actually that's increasingly not the case. You can now major in something which is called classical studies, which means you read Greek and Latin literature without knowing Greek and Latin. Um, <laughs> notice how politely I'm not commenting on that. Um, and one of the wonderful things about Greek and Latin is they are highly structured languages. Mm. You know, you can't in Greek and Latin do that thing that Twitter wants you to do when you go on Twitter and it says who to follow and I have a heart attack every time I see that because I want to put an M after who uh, because it's an oblique case actually and you know one of the things I love about Greek and Latin is they are the rigor of the grammars 
enforces a rigor of thought, right? These things are connected, you know, these are, you, you have to uh, channel your thinking in highly structured ways. And so I think that, I don't know why that had such a great appeal for me. I was trying to learn Greek when I was a kid already. I used to sneak to the seminary next door to my high school in order to sit in on their Greek classes. My mother knew that. She'd have a heart attack. Um, and so, um, so I think that this idea, you know, that also when you're a classicist, you have to master an enormous body of material. And that helped me a lot, as it turned out, for my life as a writer. You know, you can't... i never forget, when I was an undergraduate, I was talking to a professor of mine, like a great mentor of mine, uh, who, as it turns out, is an Odyssey scholar. And I was about to write a, my first big-term paper, and she said casually, that those were the days where you could <coughs> smoke in universities, so we were both puffing away, you know, and, and she said, well... She said, just remember, you can't write anything until you've read everything. Uh-huh. And that, but that's how scholars think. Of course, now everybody writes everything without knowing anything, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's our world. Um, uh, you know, and then you have to go online and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I, you know, didn't realize World War II was not in the 19th century. Um, so... <laughs> So, you know, between the, the sort of the, the rigor of the grammars and the, the sort of scholarly duty to, to mm. amass a body of knowledge before you are licensed to say anything, that came in handy. So, you know, I did a PhD in classics, but already I was freelance writing while I was working on my dissertation, and I thought, oh, God, that's what I want to do. So I finished the degree, but then I moved to New York to be a writer, And I still remember I would do book reviews, you know, because I thought, oh, he has a PhD, he can read. So it wasn't that I actually had more interest in being a book critic than a drama critic or anything else, which I've subsequently done with great pleasure. But then I still remember my editors. So they said, oh, here's the new novel by Philip Roth or whatever. And I would review it. And they would say, oh, you read his other novels, too. (laughs) You know, and I would be so spit like, you know, there are people who write reviews of books without actually knowing the other stuff that this guy wrote. It seems so incredible to me. So I think, I mean, you know, all kidding aside, the idea that you have to do a tremendous amount of homework, Mm. I think is important to me because, you know, I have a wonderful editor friend in New York who always likes to semi-joke that criticism is a service industry, you know. You don't have the time to do all the things that, in order to form a total judgment about the degree to which the movie The Hours is a faithful representation of Virginia Woolf or whatever. But that's my job. I have to read everything about Virginia Woolf. I have to read everything about Michael Cunningham. Mm -hmm. I have to do that. And then I can give you something, and because you don't have the time to do the work. And I take that very seriously, right? I'm doing something for my reader. Um, So it served me well, I think, I hope. Do you also feel that when you write from that substantial platform of knowledge that you are writing for, at least in part, for an audience that has matched you in its preparation? Well, now I'm going to say something that you're not going to like, which is that I never 
when I am writing, think of the audience. Mm. Because I am, I am working out for myself a problem. That's why I write, I, I choose things because I think they're interesting. Mm. And I'm really, I mean, I, you know, I love my audience, of course, but I, I you know, I, I'm really doing it for me. I'm, I'm always thinking it's something I'm, I'm trying to work out, something that's troubling me, something I don't understand. The famous Mad Men thing, for example, you know, I thought everyone loves this show and I'm not feeling the love, so what's that about, you know? And then the piece becomes an, an effort to sort of work out, mm. you know, something. So, of course, you know, having said what I just said, I want to do a certain amount of work for my audience, right? Um, and I want them to be with me, but I'm not trying to sell anything, you know, I'm not, I don't care if you see the movie or don't, if you buy the book or don't. You're not writing jacket copy. No, and I'm not an ad man right. either, okay. or a publicist. Right. Well, given that, um, would you like to read the piece of the manifesto that you've located? Yeah, so this was a, a there was a great furore in New York a couple of years ago. Uh, a, a, a writer had written a very savage takedown in the New York Times of a novel, and it, 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 you know, and then people started saying, "Oh, you shouldn't write bad reviews. You should only review things if you like them." And there was a sort of sudden explosion of anxiety about what criticism is and what it's supposed to be doing. And I just got <coughs> so fed up reading all of this bunk that I just sat down and decided I was going to say what I thought criticism was about. And one of the things. Um, you know, this idea that you shouldn't review things that you don't like seemed to me very suspect, actually, uh, because, again, if you have a brain, you have to make decisions, and not all of them are going to be positive. Anyway, I was just talking about my own training as a critic when I grew up in the 70s reading The New Yorker, which had an incredible roster of popular critics writing for a general audience. <clears throat> So I list all these different people, and then I say, in all the years I read these writers, as I went through high school and then college and graduate school, it never occurred to me that they were trying to persuade me to actually see this or that performance, to buy this or that book, or to take in this or that movie. Nor did I imagine that I was being bullied or condescended to, or that I wasn't allowed to disagree with them. I thought of these writers, above all, as teachers, and like all good teachers, they taught by example. The example that they set week after week was to recreate on the page the drama of how they had arrived at their judgments. By dramatizing their own thinking on the page, by revealing the bases of their judgments and letting you glimpse the mechanisms by which they exercised their individual, personal, and quirky taste, all of these critics were necessarily implying that you could arrive at your own mm. quite different judgments, that a given work could operate on your own sensibility in a different way. What I was really learning from those critics each week when I was a teenager was how to think. How to think, we, used to we use the term so often that we barely realize what we're saying, critically, which is to say how to think like a critic, how to judge things for yourself. To think is to make judgments based on knowledge, period. For all criticism is based on this equation, knowledge plus taste 
equals meaningful judgment. The key word here is meaningful. Thank you. <coughs> uh, I wonder if we can push this, um, this kind of fulcrum of judgment and the idea of the dialogic along a little bit further. Mm -hmm. um, in much of your work, there is, a, there is a, um, an unwillingness to accept or a, a dislike even of kind of false dichotomies, of, of oppositions that seem unproductive or at least not as productive as the space between them. Um, and I'm thinking of, for example, the ones that we tend to take for granted between popular and so-called high culture, mm. between entertainment and serious culture. Um, and you write, for example, with immense affection and I think with great perspicacity about Noel Coward. Not, a, not, a, not a, an artist that we now think about a great deal. Um, and the phrase that you bring to the surface of your writing in the case of Noel Coward is a talent to amuse, mm. which would seem to be a disparagement in the terms in which we understand the serious. But in the way you discuss that and in the way you discuss Noel Coward, absolutely not. No, because I think, you know, I do, I'm not a person who, I mean, it sounds odd coming from a classicist, right? But I think, I think uh, I'm not interested in a high-low separation. I think it's a false separation. It's certainly not really a separation the Greeks themselves would have made. You know, everybody went to see Greek tragedies. In fact, it was practically compulsory, you know, and if you couldn't afford the little ticket, the state paid for you, you know. So these were great popular entertainments, you know, which we now think of as this very recherche art form, but, you know, everybody went. And so that... You know, when you're a classicist, you are studying a culture, you are studying every aspect of a culture, high, low, body, serious, grandiose, silly, whatever. And I think that really helped me. Also, as a person with a, I don't, in my own enjoyments of things, mm. uh, I, I don't think I'm a snooty person about what you should, you know, I watch Revenge, you know, I'm perfectly happy to watch Scandal. Um, you know, and I think it, it's, it can be a problem for critics when you start saying, oh, well, you know, I don't, you know, somebody once said to me, a person I was thinking of dating, God help me, and said, oh, well, you know, I don't watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and I don't date you, you know. And, uh, and I, because this is your culture, you know, this is your culture. And as a critic, and as, even as an intellectual, you have a responsibility, I would say, to inhabit your own yeah. culture. I, so I have no pre uh, patience for this. And what I do is I look at a thing, and don't worry, we will come to Noel Coward, you see. I'm not worried. This is one of those famous digressions. So I do, um, I do judge everything by the same standards, which is I take seriously what people set out to do, and whether that's scandal or you know, the latest Philip Roth novel is immaterial to me. If you think you're doing something serious, you know, television or whatever, then I'll take it seriously. That's your invitation to me as a critic is, here's my thing, what do you think? And if you're doing it seriously and you have 
aspirations and I'll take them at face value. And then I'll go with it, you know, whether it's the Spider-Man musical or a new production of the Oristaya. One of the things I've always loved about Noel Coward, I've written about him three times, is he's a hard worker. You know, I, I have a friend in New York with whom I divide all people into either Elizabeth I types or Mary Queen of Scots types. <laughs> and you'll guess which side I'm on. Um, you know, there are people who get the thing done, who organize themselves, who are productive and are alive at the end of the play. And, you know, and then there's the drama queens who create trouble for everybody. And, you know, one of the things I love about Noel Coward is all kidding aside, first of all, I enjoy his work, and I think it's, you know, it's not, is it great? Is it as great as Shakespeare? No, but he knew he wasn't as great as Shakespeare. You know, self-knowledge is not a bad thing, and he always said that himself, and that's what the talent to amuse is, right? Mm. He's an entertainer, and he's a very good entertainer. He kept producing. He was a hard worker, and he knew who he was. He knew what his limits were, but he also knew how good he was, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. In fact, I reviewed a volume of his letters, and it's an incredibly moving passage in his yeah. letters where he's explaining to his mother why he didn't run away to, to California when World War II started and why he stayed in London. And he said, I have derived a very good living from the British public, and now that they're in danger, it's not the time to leave them behind just because I have the means to do so. I thought that was an extraordinarily wonderful thing. Um, so I just, you know, I like people who are productive and mm. get on with it. And yeah. that's why I like to keep coming back to him. And, and who are not seduced by, if you like, celebrity, who in the end are grounded in their practice. Yes, and I think here is where self-knowledge comes. You know, as if you go through actually both volumes that of my collected, you see, you know, a theme that I'm fascinated, in, in, fascinated by is... You know, people who forget what their strengths are. You know, I did this big piece about Mel Brooks's musical of the producers, which... Uh, which uh, I was hoping we'd get to this. <laughs> you know, which the movie of the producers from the 1960s, one of the funniest, most subversive, crazy, you know, with the great production numbers, Springtime for Hitler... Um, and, uh, and then by the time he came to make this, you know, everything about this overblown musical version that he had made betrayed everything that was great about the original. Similarly, in I wrote a big piece about Julie Taymor's Spider-Man musical, the reverberations of whose catastrophe I'm sure even got as far as New Zealand. And, um, uh, you know, it's interesting to me when artists forget what they're good at because, look, it's, we're all human. You get seduced by money, by power, by fame, by the sense that you can do anything. So I think that's also, of course, a Greek value. Yeah. Right? Know thyself. And it's worth, yeah. you know, in a world in which hype and celebrity and followings, you know, are so easy to come by, it gets easier and easier, I think, to sort of actually forget who you are as an artist yeah. and what makes you interesting. Would it be pushing an historical analogy way too far to suggest that Mel Brooks was a kind of Euripides of his time, someone who was subversive, um, who had a, an extraordinary comic subversive talent? Is that well, an absurd I, claim? No, I, I think that, you know, the, he's a very successful entertainer, but who had this, as comedy so often does, has a very dangerous 
edge. You know, mm. what his, the way in which, you know, if you've seen the movie, the producers, the, the dance that he's dancing at the very edge of what's acceptable and the sort of teetering over the edge of really bad taste and things you're not supposed to do is interesting. You know, yeah. that's interesting. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm always happy to make a classical analogy. Yeah, and how did, <laughs> that, you know, how did yeah. that kind of brinksmanship play out, for example, in the case of um, Euripides and the dramas that were perceived, at least, to be um, well, I subversive? Think, yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, a, a famous statistic about Euripides is that, you know, compared to Sophocles, who won like 20-something first prizes in the annual drama competition, Euripides only won five. Um, so that's telling you something, you know, about subversiveness. Then again, Aristotle says he's the most tragic of all the mm. tragic playwrights. So there again, you're getting a, a divide between popular opinion, maybe, and uh, professional intellectuals. I don't know. That's Aristotle writing the sleeve notes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm also interested in terms of that um, dialogic model, not to harp on about it too long, but to move it across a little way. Um, what else it opens up is a discussion about other things, other issues such as gender and mm -hmm. the complications and the richness that can arise from thinking through those kinds of things. And for example, in Geoffrey Eugenides' second novel, Middlesex, um, you note the potential to make something of the hermaphrodite central character, Kaylee, or Kelly, um, a potential that I, I think you say remains somewhat unrealized, mm -hmm. despite what Eugenides, uh, what Eugenides has Kelly say, which is latent inside me was the ability to communicate between the genders, to see not with the motivation of one sex, but in the stereoscope of both. It's quite a wonderful statement. It's, it is. If only the novel had done that. Had done um, I, I, um, well, you know, there's much about that novel I admired. You know, that's, it, it was a very interesting review of my last collection by a very smart guy. Uh, and he said the pieces I really seemed to enjoy, which he thought were the best pieces, were the really mixed ones, you know, which again goes back to your idea of dialogic, you yeah. know, that, that when things are, you know, parts of them work and parts of them don't work, is when I get excited because that's a way in to think about what works and what doesn't work, which is an interesting critical question. So in that novel, you know, I always suspected, so, you know, if you haven't read the novel, it's about this, this uh, young woman who finds out that she's actually born a boy uh, and the parents raised her as a girl. And so that's the name of the no novel is Middlesex. And then it's, this is all sort of played out against this Greek immigrant family drama. And I just felt that he started to write a straight, no pun intended, you know, Greek family immigrant saga, which I thought was the heart of that novel. I thought that's really where the soul was. And then, as we do, because it was the 1990s or whatever, you know, some kind of gender quirk seemed interesting, and we'll throw that in. I never felt that these two parts really connected in right. a meaningful way. Well, but that's I think a kind of afterthought. Yeah, I mean, I don't on. know. I don't know how he wrote the novel, but as yeah. a critic, I felt there was something sort of like Frankenstein's monster about it. It was like the head of a Greek family novel on the body of a hip 
gender thing, you know. And I didn't, you know, with the seams showing. <laughs> and so, but I mean, I do think it's always interesting to me when things don't quite work. Yeah. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm always happy to write about things that I love. Um, and, but what excites me, I think, as a critic is, is mixed results. Mm. And I have to say, you know, one of the, I think, really poisonous uh, kind of motions or energies in our culture is this sort of the ranking. You know, it all started with Amazon, you know, the ranking. I'm not interested in ranking, you know. I, that's not interesting, a thumbs up, thumbs down, five stars, four stars. This is not interesting to me. And I think that most artistic products are mixed, mm. except like by Mozart. You know, I mean, but I think in general, we're people, humans create these things. And so most of them have, aren't perfect. You know, the idea that things, that that's somehow a useful criterion, is it a five star book? I think that's completely idiotic. Yeah. I, it's not, it's not interesting to me. Yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting to me to find out how the pieces of something come together and yeah. whether it clicks or not. Yeah. And the, if you like the dialogue between that worked and that sucked. And that's interesting. It's yeah. more interesting than this kind of is seamless all yeah. the way through. Or, but I would say yeah. that even the infamous Mad Men piece, which I, you know, I still have to lie down with a cold compress when I read <laughs> some of the mail that I got about that piece. You know, I found myself involved in this insane email exchange with like a 24-year-old game inventor in Seattle and it got more and more surreal and I thought if I were a novelist I would just package this and sell it because it was so <laughs> great it was like when worlds collide you know um uh you know that was actually a mixed review you know everyone yeah. says oh the takedown the hatchet job a lot of that review was spent talking about things that I thought were actually very successful and interesting. And in fact, the punchline of that review in a funny way was that I am as subject to the allure of this TV show as eight trillion other people were. Um, so I think almost everything interesting is mixed. Yeah. I wonder if, I mean, I'm just aware of how we're trucking along here. There is something I would really love to, um, to get to, which is the way in which you discuss the production of the realization of female character mm -hmm. in literature and indeed in opera, um, thinking particularly of Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, mm. the devolution of that into Michael Cunningham's novel, The, what, the Hours, then the film adaptation um, of that novel by mm -hmm. Stephen Daldry with David Hare's screenplay. Um, I mean, I found your discussion of those three iterations of a character, very moving, but moving because they were, they were, in their judgments, in each case, so sympathetic to the need to be inside that character somehow, to understand a set of conditions that weren't simply um, uh, a surface description of some mm -hmm. kind, that mm -hmm. went in there and did something with the understanding. Well, I think, you know, I, we've, you know, I should say for, you know, what is that full disclosure, this is not the first time we've met. Um, and, uh, and so we had a flat white, in fact, a couple of days ago to break the ice. And we were talking about this issue of, you know, I've often written about 
specific, you know, work specifically in their presentation of female characters. And the sort of punchline of the hours review is that, uh, you know, in Michael Cunningham's novel, one of the characters, and excuse me, it's been a long time, I can't remember, but the, the, the L.A. housewife in the 1950s yeah. um, was actually a sort of Polish, of a Polish family and had a beaky nose and was strange and everything. And in the movie, she became the ravishing Julianne Moore, uh, as one does, and, uh, and, and was presented as a kind of a bland... Mm. Uh, caricature of a 50s housewife, which I thought completely reversed the whole meaning of what the character was supposed to be. But I think, you know, I, when I was a real classicist and writing my dissertation, I, I worked on female characters in Euripides, who was famous already in antiquity for his <coughs> female characters. And so I guess I was trained from the start or had a an interest in, you know, how are women represented by male artists? Yeah. Um, I think possibly the fact that I'm a gay person has sensitized me to the slights of hand that can take place when one kind of person is trying to represent another kind of person. I don't know, but that's been a consistent interest of mine. And as you know, there are whole sections of my of my books that are devoted to popular representations mm. of female characters. Um, so, you know, it's interesting, but I was already being trained when I was working on Euripides. Uh. You know, it's been a problem from the start. And, and the, the most interesting aspect of that is, you know, Euripides thought that he was allowing, as it were, women to have a voice on the state, you know, Phaedra, Medea, these famous angry ladies, you know, uh, but of course the fact that he isn't a woman, so it's already a kind of a projection, a fantasy, and that gets to be interesting and complicated. Mm. Um, so I'll keep writing about it. Good. Um, now, we want to hear, before we close this session, about the new work, but I wonder if we could um, cut to the chase just for a moment um, and, and return and I'm sorry, Daniel, I'm doing this because I feel I should, um, return to the Mad Men review. Um, and partly this is because when I was having breakfast this morning, um, I was looking at the New York Times uh, online, and there was um, a, a very nice uh, piece by Dave Itzkoff in the New York Times online about the fade to black of Mad Men, and the opening paragraph of, of, this, um, of this piece goes, it took almost 55 years, but the 1960s are finally over. They ended without our even realizing it somewhere in the middle of this bifurcated final season of Mad Men after Don Draper and his fellow employees at Sterling Cooper and Partners watched the moon landing and mourned the death of the agency's gentle co-founder, Bert Cooper. When the AMC drama returned a year later in April for its final seven episodes, suddenly it was the spring of 1970 and the decade that had defined the show was gone. <clears throat> now there are no more reprises for Mad Men on Sunday after 92 episodes. The series and the story of Don Draper come to an end. Would you like to say a few words at the graveside? 
Well, you know, I'm not shedding a tear. Uh, I only got to episode 52 because there had been four seasons when I started my piece, so I watched all four seasons. Um, and so I never got to the moon landing uh, or the 1970s. I mean, I think finally, you know, this... I don't want to dilate too much on Mad Men and my dislike for it because people like it and, you know tastes are different, but that's what I want to say, which is, for whatever reason, you know, it didn't speak to me. And finally, when you're a critic, it comes down to the irreducible question of taste, which is mysterious, you know. And I just, I didn't, after 52 episodes of watching that, and look, I have to say, and this is worth, I think, pointing out, you know, no critic sits down eager to dislike something. No. That's, you know, I could have happily spent my hours else otherwise than watching 52 episodes of a show I didn't really love, right? So I was, you know, I'd heard it was wonderful. I sat down, I turned on the DVD player, or whatever it was back then, and I, you know, and I started watching, and I just didn't feel anything. And for me, the problem was, finally, that I didn't care about any of those people. I just didn't care. I watched... 30 seconds of another American show called Friday Night Lights about a little town in Texas where all they care about is football. <laughs> Mutatis mutandis, as we say. You could be in New Zealand. Uh, and, <laughs> and, um, and in 30 seconds, I was more invested in those people than I had been in 52 episodes of Mad Men. I thought I would die unless I knew they were all going to be all right. So, you know... It ultimately comes down to de gustibus, which is fine. But, yeah. but if you don't like something, as I did not like, I just thought, then you have to make a case. Yeah. Especially if everyone else likes it, right? Um, so, look, I, 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 in my piece, I talked about what I thought the allure was, and I'm happy that people liked it. You know, I don't get any pleasure out of not liking something that, uh, you know, all of my friends like. You know, it doesn't make for happy dinner parties. Um, <laughs> But it's ultimately always a question of taste. And whatever taste is, you know, whoever can answer that should be sitting here instead of me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now, um, I'm aware that we should leave some time for questions, but your new book, the one that's on the way, <laughs> um, would you like to talk a little bit about that and then read us something from your odyssey? Well, um, yeah, you see, what you're not looking at, but what we're looking at are these giant signs with numbers of minutes left. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's like watching your life end. Uh, so... It's like being in a car wash. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm going to do, because I, I... Although I always like to say, if any event I do is within 100 miles of New York City, my mother asks the first question. But... Uh, <laughs> Luckily, <laughs> 26 hours on Qantas later. Um, so I'm just going to read uh, uh, from the very beginning of this book and, uh, and then get to questions. Um, the book is uh, about a year I spent reading the Odyssey with my dad uh, before he died. My father was a scientist, but in, late in life decided he wanted to read the classics with me. So we had this amazing 
um, experience. And I'm not going to say anything more than that. I'm just going to read from the very uh, beginning. And I will say that, so first he, we thought we'd read it together. Then he thought he would take a course that I was teaching about the Odyssey, which he did. <sighs> and then, uh, <laughs> and that was funny. And then... Um, <laughs> And then uh, we actually found out about a cruise that recreated the voyages of Odysseus, and we went on it. So I'm just going to read the first couple of pages, and then I promise I'll shut up. Okay, so uh, this is just the first pages. You don't need to know anything else. One evening a few years ago, just before the beginning of the spring term in which I was going to be teaching a seminar on Homer's Odyssey, my father, a retired research scientist who was then aged 81, asked me, for reasons I thought I understood at the time, if he might sit in on the course, and I said yes. And so once a week, for the next 16 weeks, he would drive the three hours or so between the house where I grew up, in which he still lived with my mother, to the Riverside campus of the small college where I teach. And at 10 past 10 on Friday mornings, he would take a seat among the 18 first-year students who were enrolled in the course, children not even a quarter his age, and would join in the discussion of this old poem, an epic about long journeys and long marriages and what it means to yearn for home. It was deep winter when the term began, and my father, when he wasn't trying to persuade me that Odysseus, whom he didn't much like because he would say he's a liar and he cheated on his wife, when my father wasn't trying to persuade me that Odysseus wasn't a real hero, he was worrying a great deal about the weather, the snow on the windscreen, the sleet on the roads, the ice on the walkways. He was afraid of falling, he said. And so we would gingerly make our way along the path to the building where the class met, or afterwards, up the little walkway to the house on the campus that is, for a few days each week, my home. It used to amuse my father that for a long time I have divided my weeks among different places. For most of his life, my father lived in one house, the one he moved into a month before I was born, and which he left for the last time one January day, exactly a year after he started taking my class on the Odyssey. Then, at the beginning of the summer, just a few weeks after the course had ended, I happened to hear about a cruise called In the Footsteps of Odysseus. I called my father and we went online to investigate. The ship, we learned, would follow the mythic hero's convoluted itinerary, beginning at Troy, the site of which is located in what is now Turkey, and ending on Ithaki, a small island in the western Greek sea that purports to be Ithaca, the place that the hero called home. It was an educational cruise, and my father, although not a great believer in what he saw as needless luxury, cruises and sightseeing and vacations, was a great believer in education. And so, full of our recent immersion in the text, we took the cruise, which lasted ten days in all, one day for each year of Odysseus's long journey home. As often happens when you try to follow in someone else's footsteps, however, it didn't turn out quite as planned. Unexpected events having nothing to do with the ship or the weather intervened, and although we saw nearly everything we had hoped to see, 
strange new landscapes and the debris of the various civilizations that had occupied them, the Neolithic monoliths in Gyozo in Malta, where there is a cave that is said to have been the home of Calypso, the beautiful nymph who offered Odysseus immortality if only he would forsake his wife for her, and he refused. The elegantly severe columns of a Doric temple left unfinished for reasons we can never know by some Greeks of the classical era in southern Italy, a few hours sail from the spot on the Campanian coast which, the ancients believed, was the entrance to the underworld, that being another unexpected stop on Odysseus's journey towards home, but perhaps not so unexpected after all, because, as we know, a man must settle his accounts with his dead before he can get on with his living. The fat Venetian forts squatting on scorched Peloponnesian meadows like frogs on a heath after a fire, near Pylos in southern Greece, Pylos, the town where, according to Homer, a kindly, if somewhat long-winded, king named Nestor is said to have reigned and once entertained the young son of Odysseus, who had come there looking for his long-lost father. This is how the Odyssey begins, a son gone in search of a phantom father. And of course the sea, too, always the sea, with its many faces, glass smooth and stone rough, at certain times blithely open and at others tightly inscrutable, sometimes of a weak blue so clear that you could see straight down to the sea urchins at the bottom, as spiked and expectant as mines left over from some war whose causes and combatants no one any longer knows, sometimes of an impenetrable purple that is the color of the wine that we refer to as red, but the Greeks call black. We saw all those things and learned a great deal about the people who made them, but in the end, we never reached the place to which Odysseus strove so famously to return, to Ithaca, the rocky island whose scrappiness and poverty, in comparison to the rocky dazzle of the Maltese coast or to the opulent undulations of the coastlines of Latium or Campania, to the broad plains of the Peloponnese feathered with their silvered olive trees, makes only the more poignant his desire to return to it. We never reached the most famous destination in literature, never saw his home. But then, as anyone who has read the Odyssey knows, when we travel, we must expect the unexpected. For this reason, our not reaching Ithaca may have been the most Odyssean aspect of our educational cruise. Expect the unexpected. Late in the autumn of that same year, a few months after our return home from our trip, which I would sometimes joke with my father because we never reached our goal, could still be considered incomplete, still ongoing, my father fell. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.